and welcome to Inspiration Practice, um, where I speak with artists and writers about how they connect to inspiration and maintain their creative practice through some kind of ritual. It's hosted by me, uh, Derek Denkla, poet, uh, professor of creative writing and fellow seeker of inspiration practice. So I'm joined today by my old friend um, and writer, um, the jack of all trades too, uh, Jennifer Cabot, who uh, is known for her deeply uh, intricate essay writing um, in all sorts of interesting forums that go from best American essays to Granta to Freeze to Bomb. So she's spread the seed of her intellectual um, undertakings in, in a variety of places that um, uh, that are un, uh, present an unusual mix. Um, she's a recipient of the Warhol Foundation Artist Writers Grant for her criticism. So on top of that, she writes a lot about art and, um, and she's an apprentice herbalist, which we were just chatting about, <laughs> which is something that animates me. I'm, I'm less than an apprentice herbalist. I'm sort of an herbal appreciator. And uh, she lives in upstate New York where she's um, honed that art uh, amidst the fields and mountains there. And she teaches at the new school, which I'm an alumni of uh, their MFA program and serves on her volunteer fire department, which to me is slightly, in a way, one of your more improbable more improbable characteristics in some ways. And uh, we can touch upon that too, I suppose. Um, she recently was awarded the Silvers Foundation grant. She's currently working on a memoir on time and socialist uprisings that's in uh, uh, in a format of three short novella length essays. So, and we're gonna talk today about, you know, what um, sort of keeps her at this practice, which is, you know, sort of one that she's defined for herself. Um, which as a writer is your goal, but also quite hard to do. So can you I hear, hear me? Yeah, I hear you now. And I see you're like um, <laughs> uh, stalking a serial killer wall in the background. Yeah, that's how I write. That's my crazy wall. It's not that crazy. Yeah, what's um, it is that is that for the novella? That is the novella and all it's glory or pieces of it. Yeah. yeah. You might have to move that, that keyboard thing. It looks like it's getting in the way of progress. <laughs> it's actually not, but it keeps going. It goes like across the wall. Wow. Oh shit. Like you need like a skateboard to like follow your own narrative. Something like that. But you know, David did offer to take the keyboard down and I was like, Oh no, it's fine. I can work around it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Codependent accommodations. Um, yes. Very. <laughs> So, um, how are you doing? I'm much better. Yeah. It, it, um, yeah. I've been saved by the wonders of Biden's and, not oh, the president. Interesting. I wonder, is he named for that? Um, so to speak, or, um, no, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, um, it's called beggars chicks is another name for it, but they're Save. really beggars chicks. Interesting. And it's a plant. They're, it's a plant. It's a super, super common weed. And it's also like an anti-malarial and good to fight Lyme. And anyway, low level infection. Very cool. And do you take it as a tea or did you chew it like a... You tincture it. So it works best. Like it actually doesn't work if you dry it. It's not as effective. So it's not really great as a tea, but it's really, really good as a tincture. So I tinctured some last year. Comes in handy. Anyway. Very nice. I'd like to see your... Your 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 wall of tinct. 
the, the the pharmacology part of the house yeah that's upstairs hidden away right. i mean we do have there's some dried herbs on the are there like are there is there like a, a jar for full of eye of newt <laughs> no but there should be i mean here i'll uh take you with me for a second and you yeah, can see sure. can yeah. you see can you see that that's the, the that looks pretty that looks legit I want looks pretty wall of newt doesn't it yeah it does look pretty wall of newt it's like more orderly and there's less like fearsome uh things in kind of viscous brown fluids and um, well it's also because david is a virgo i mean he's he's a man of order and i am definitely not yeah i'm <laughs> i'm a i'm a i'm an order seeking person but i also have this kind of um way to draw chaos to me uh after after i have order i my desire is usually to muss up the order so um, yeah i'm i'm sloppy I am personally ah, okay. sloppy. I don't know. I yes. would like to. I would like to give myself an appellation, but I, I toggle between OCD and totally lax. So I don't know what that is. That's probably some yeah. kind of some kind of Aquarian conspiracy. I um I um, wanted to, I wanted to brag to you that I have a whole yeah. bottle of um, dried mugwort that was my big project last year. Um, and, it was so, and it was so funny reading your essay because, um, and we can get into this again, like there's like a weird rehash that yeah. sometimes happens. The first thing I'll ask is a mundane thing, um, is what's your daily ritual like? Like, what is, do you have a fixed one? Is it fluid? What do you, what is your kind of, um, get up and go and get to the keys kind of vibe? That is a kind of, it, it, I, I, I do, and I don't have a thing like, uh, in the best of all possible worlds, I meditate and then I start work. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes I'll like meditate and then I'll go running. Running helps a lot. Because mm -hmm. uh, I like to think and run and listen to audiobooks while I run. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't feel like I have like a really particularly like, you know, sometimes I just like lays in bed and drink coffee and read the New York Times on my phone. In which case I, I like enter the world with a lot of self-loathing. Uh, but usually it's like, you know, I, I try and like do something that kind of takes me out of my head for a bit. Mm. Um, and I also oftentimes will read poetry in the morning, like while I'm kind of in that sort of like transition space between not words of my own and words of my own. Yeah. Mm. Mm, it's um, like, I think it's like um, it's the, the the contrast between coffee and poetry. I think maybe the polar opposites of like what you expect your mind to do, right? Um, speed, do things fast, do things slow. You know. Um, yeah. Um, I've been like very moved lately by this book by an economist, Dan Daniel Kahneman, which I think I've now spoken about twice in my podcast. So it's people are going to think I'm plugging his book, but he has this famous book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. <laughs> Um, so it's, I'm always thinking about like which things we do fit into that binary um, and how we negotiate between the two. Um, so in terms of um, when you're, when you're on your uh, run, let's say, is there, um, are there aha moments that uh, come to you and then you sort of, you know, try to, you know, memorize that and get back to uh, your seat and, and get them to paper or how does that, how does that work? Is it, it's um, like where I stop on my run and I like have to type something into my phone and my like, like running app doesn't realize I've stopped. And then suddenly like my like mile time has like gone down the gutter and I'm like, fuck you phone. I run an eight minute mile. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happens. Basically. That's, 
that's really a, that's a beautiful contrast between thinking fast and thinking slow. The phone is maintaining a certain level of 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 of, of thought process for you, and but you've 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 downshifted without notifying it, um, which is an interesting you know metaphor because our thinking fast and Kahneman's notion is like this instinctual thinking, which is sort of the opposite of running. And well, running is somewhat instinctual, right? Because where we put our feet is always like. Um, when it doesn't go well, you realize you've been thinking about it without thinking about it. But um, but it's thinking fast is like this instinctual thinking that we make, you know, flash connections and thinking slow is this kind of deliberative conscious thought. And I always think about art as being some kind of um, dialogue between these two things. And and I think to a certain extent, the fast thinking is the inspiration and the slow thinking is the practice. Right. Um, well, and how, how do you shift between yeah. the two? Well, I think the slow thinking is like the showing up thinking when it's like not, I mean, it's like, I've never actually thought about it in terms of this sort of like construction, but it's like, it's like you have to do the slow laborious stuff for the like, for that like weird click where like an idea that makes absolutely no um, sense. Like if you were trying to connect it on a line, it's like, doesn't connect, but it suddenly is actually that idea in a much more interesting way. Like, yeah. And how do you have um, do you have like set hours that you you say, Jen, I must sit at the desk from 11 to six or or is it nothing? Is it more like I, I think that's cruel, like <laughs> <laughs> treat, treat mean, your treat your animals well, you know, I mean, it's also like it depends on where I am in writing. It's like if I'm yeah. starting something, I'm a bitch and I'm mean and my poor husband uh, like. You're mean, to, like, you're mean to him and somehow that oh, helps? I'll pick fights. I'll, I'll be self-loathing. I'm just like, I'm like an awful person. Um, and we both know what's going on. It's like, you know, enough years of marriage and like you can, you work that out. Uh, but and on you those have, days, you have, trying- you have PIS, post-inspiration syndrome? Totally. Or pre-inspiration syndrome or like first day of inspiration syndrome or staring at a page syndrome sucks. Uh, but on those days I try and like, um, have really low expectations. Like mm-hmm. I'll set a timer, I'll work for 45 minutes, then I'll try and go outside and like pick flowers for 15 minutes mm-hmm. or something like, uh, and it's like, I do a lot of writing doula-ing for people and like, and, and it's particularly around that kind of painful bit of mm. kind of like when the writing is nascent, how do you like proceed without killing yourself? And how do you know an idea is worth pursuing? You don't. Mm-hmm. Like you, have, like, like who, who, like who would ever think like foraging for weeds and filing for unemployment was an essay? But I was like, fuck, it's an essay. I know it's an essay. I really enjoyed that. And and you're referring to secret history of weeds, right? And as well as a dangerous ornamental, which are both kind of dealing with the same. I guess dangerous ornamental is more the unemployment story, though, right? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like right now I'm sort of super interested in weeds and capitalism, but like, but like, you know, it's like on the outset, like that idea does not sound like it's going to mesh, but I was really convinced there was something in it even before I started really thinking about the research for it. I was just like filing and foraging. Maybe it was just the two gerund constructions with an F that made it work for me. Right. Right. Interesting. You know, and yeah, I think foraging is an interesting one, right, too, because it's um, 
I too like had an experience. I was upstate filing for unemployment. I was leading a parallel life. And we spoke about this earlier where I read your essay and I felt like you were writing my life. I mean, except, except for the parts that were, you know, deeply personal to you and your family and, and your own, I bring my own trauma to the exercise, which is uh, strange and interesting in its own right. But, but when you wrote those things about the combination, I too was grappling with this, like this institutional system that was kind of grinding my economics to life or to death. I couldn't figure out which half the time. And then, um, and then the, the nature that just sort of, you know, unconcernedly kept doing what it did and reminding me how unimportant my, you know, institutional grind was, you know, and it was, I said to someone recently uh, that it's a place I think about, you know, when I meditate a lot and I never had a year in which I watched nature um, move at its pace. I was so interested in my own human pace. And last year, human pace seemed so petty and maybe about to stop. So I thought, you know, nature had a lot more to to teach me. Um, And I learned and I was just, I realized what a ignoramus I was, you know, so, uh, but it was, there was so much there. Um, and, um, but I was totally overwhelmed. I spoke to you earlier. I was totally overwhelmed by how much there was to learn. And I, I, as much as I touched upon some of the same plants, because we were in the same region as you did, I, I couldn't figure out how to speak to them the way you did. And so I just, I wonder like different plants, do they speak to you at different times and demand you write about them or. God, I think. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. That's a, it's like, that is a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, partly it's when they appear and mm-hmm. it's probably like, I have a slightly obsessive relationship with plants. That's like, mm. uh, and I had that experience too, of like last year, like suddenly like the natural world held so much sucker when the other world, the human world seemed really strange and like mm-hmm. very doomed. And I spent a long time thinking about lichen, like, and like actually thinking about like that, you know, like, like that time could exist in lichen time and not human time. And I'm very interested in breaking human and chronological time in my writing. That's kind of like my biggest interest. Mm. Uh, and lichen, I mean, it's like, they're fucking amazing. Like they're part of us. It's like they break down rocks into minerals to soil. So mm. we're always eating lichen because we're always like part of that. And and so it's like this idea that we could be part of a different sort of relationship to place and time just by eating, like just by food, like by those things. Mm. Um, but, you know, that said, like I have like, you know, it's like there are some plants that trouble me, like right outside we have all this knapweed blooming and knapweed is a very um, exuberant plant to use a different adjective for it. It's very... Um, pervasive mm-hmm. uh and i'm like and it really bothers me because it's like starting to become a monoculture in places and i'm like mm. uh so it's like i'm like i might have to start writing about it just because it's like it's like the more time you spend with something that you might have a fractious relationship with mm-hmm. it's like the more you love that thing it's like you know oh uh, yeah it's like you well, can love it by 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 learning about it so maybe that's how I kind of figure out what plants to write about. Right. I guess like um, I always um, think that there's no there's no writing without conflict. Right. There's no um, yeah. 
rarely do we, you know, do I try to write about something that's about peace. If I write about peace, it's because I'm writing about not having it, you know, um, and wanting it, you know, and that's a conflict. But it's, I think that's interesting to write about the napweed. The thing that I found really interesting about plants is I feel like with some exceptions, every plant was named by someone with a poetic impulse. Like every plant has such, and I remember looking up plant names and there's, every plant has like 20 names. You know? oh, like, isn't that, you that's know? the thing that's so awesome about it. Cause you can like play with that etymology, like, cause the etymology holds these secret history. Yeah. Like Charlie on the shore and, you know, yeah. nickel, nickel on the, this, I, I mean, like crazy, like such poetry. And then of course there's the Latin, which kind of brings it all to a thudding crash of a Linnaean, you know, naming, um, which is like a beginning, I think in your writing too, you mentioned it's the beginning of this colonial project of like naming the world and, and making it smaller. <laughs> but then you get these, this exuberance of all these other names that they're like, they're like, screw Linnaeus, we're going to call it whatever we want, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I have to say like, you know, Coltsfoot, which is which I, which I love. It's like the first flower here. So it comes out before anything else. And it's a kind of dandelion like flower. I always remember it. Um, and it comes out like it blooms before its leaves appear. So mm. I always remember it by this other common name, which is sons and fathers. Cause right. the son appears oh before the fathers. And I just fucking, I love that. Like, like I love the names because they have this sort of, they're both poetic, but they also hold all this other stuff. Yeah. It's, and, it's funny. Like I think, you know, language is inherently metaphoric, right? And then we go to describe these these creatures or these um, creations that we we don't fully comprehend, you know. And I think there's there's a majesty to plants that is different than animals. We sort of like, okay, yeah, we we also crawl around and poop and eat stuff, but plants like there's an alienness to them which um, is both attractive and always mysterious, you know, um, the slowness of it. Well, it's also interesting, like as somebody who studies herbalism, which is can look like a kind of, um, you know, slightly hippie thing, because it is a slightly hippie thing. Well, the hippies but, aren't all bad. Let's give no, them the some hippies are not bad. I'm not like I'm not down on the hippies in any way, but I'm like, it could be slightly woo woo. Uh, so there's this, you know, there's a lot of thinking about plants and plant sentience and like how plants communicate, which, of course, like everybody now knows with trees. And so it's very interesting, like uh, your relationship to plants changes when you Mm -hmm. do this. It's like, because the plants have a kind of volition and relationship to the world. Mm, And of course, like, yeah. And of course, like in Western thinking, it's like, you know, we all are kind of like um, framed from this vision of sort of like one point perspective, which is this very Renaissance thinking where like man is centered on the landscape um, in a certain kind of perspectival way that mirrors farming. But it's like, as soon as you leave a Western perspective, like plants came before humans, plants have more knowledge than humans. Like there's a whole other relationship where the plantness is everywhere and the humanness is actually pretty stupid, which I um, like a lot. But the other thing is, is that like, if you think about it, the other like non-woo thing about um, herbalism or woo-woo that I can really understand quite easily is like most of our medicines come from plants. Like, right. you know, if you think about like, you know, penicillin, it's just a fungi, like, or, you know, aspirin, it comes from birch trees and aspens and poplars and stuff. Mm. Uh, and so 
it makes it much easier to start to go from my very kind of like ordered Western way of thinking, even though I'm very anti that way of thinking to open up to, oh yeah, these plants, of course they're medicine. Like, you know, yeah. Mm. So in a way, like I'm hearing like some strains in what you're saying that, and I may be forcing this, but in a way, are you writing about some, the, the, your love relationships? In plants? With plants. Maybe. Is that, is, is the inspiration uh, 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 something deeper than fondness or, or, you know, is it, is it where, what, what inspires you to write about, write about plants as opposed to, you know, super highways and semiconductors? Well, I'm interested in super highways as well. Like I spend a lot of time reading environmental impact statements for highways in my writing, actually. Like, uh, so I'm like, I'm like down with it all. Uh, I mean, like plants are beautiful and comforting. Like I, you know, it's like, I was like a little lonely child uh, and my parents were older, like much older and my sibs were gone. And like, they would be like, we'd be on summer vacation and they'd be like, go pick some plants child and then come in and identify them. (laughs) And it's like, so um, I I think, you know, like I still am that seven-year-old where it's like, Mm. yeah that beautiful pearly everlasting that bladder campion like you know these kind of like weedy plants were really comforting so i still probably have some of that Uh, it's interesting you're like still on task from a long gone parental command yeah i guess so (laughs) and it's funny it's like you know my mom my mom had some of that plant knowledge, but it had sort of dissipated a lot. Like she'd be like, Oh, bone set. I know it's medical in this way, but she wouldn't actually remember the way, but she would Mm -hmm. like, she would kind of give me half knowledge. Uh, So sometimes I feel like there's some momness around with that. Talk to me about like the, so um, obviously herbalism is a, is a, is a, is a practice um, that's more that people would not sort of immediately define as an artistic practice, but it, and, and the writing is a practice writing about the herbalism to a certain extent. And how do, how do the, the two, um, inform each other? Like, you know, in terms of how you divide your time and your attention, because both are, you know, you could spend your life as an herbalist and that, and, uh, you know, people do, um, yeah. and, or, or your life as a writer and both are equally like, you know, in terms of two poles of practice and inspiration, they, they could pull, uh, you know, all of your time. How do you, how do you decide which one is well, going to get your attention? Well, I decided to, to train as an herbalist because of my writing, because oh, okay. I've okay. been, cause I'm pretty obsessed with plants and I thought, Oh, this is a way to learn more about plants. And like, there's a really accomplished um, herbalist who's came out of being a public health nurse who lives in my county mm. and she trains people every year. She takes on like a handful of, of people to apprentice with her. And we started talking in the, at the start of the pandemic. And that was sort of how I did that because I was already um, working and thinking about plants. So I was like, Oh, this is just a way to understand plants in a different way. Um, because I was already interested in their, um, medical qualities or their psychoactive qualities or particularly their their qualities around women's health like for years i'd known that like queen anne's lace uh could work as the morning after pill like was basically a progesterone inhibitor and i was like that's fucking cool i love that plant that plant is a carrot you know and so i was like i wanted more of that and i really wanted it as literary knowledge not as kind of like herbal practice knowledge because i don't 
I don't think I'm ever going to have the like, like to be a practicing oboist, it takes decades. I think yeah. like, it's like, it's like being a doctor. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. I have a friend know. who did Chinese medicine. It was basically four years yeah. of, of, med- of medical school. And so I'm like happy to experiment on myself. It's like, if I have a neighbor who needs something, I can help out with that. But like, I'm just, I don't, I don't really want to, I don't want to like see people in that kind of way. So it's just more, you don't want to, you don't want to be a William Carlos Williams. You don't want to do the, have the practice and, and the, and the, and the writing to write about the practice. No. So it's like, it really is like just something to fuel my writing, but like, Uh, okay. Uh, but you know, it's like I'm gonna make a skull cap tincture tomorrow, and like skull cap is really good for anxiety. <laughs> like, yeah, I think uh, it's um, it yeah. speaks it speaks to our alienation from the land too that we have to professionalize everything. Like, I wouldn't ask you the same question about cooking your breakfast, right? You know, so no. what, how do you no. how do you manage cooking your breakfast with writing? You know, but but because we, you know, I think we have this this idea that that any undertaking has to be professionalized and, and, um, and specialized in a capitalist framework that, you know, like, you know, that you can't possibly be, uh, and, and then, uh, or it could be woo woo and dilettantish instead of, um, you know, something else that we do on the side, you know, so I'm always catching myself at how I've been inculcated with the propaganda of our, our capitalist of, society. Of it must pay out. It must yes, be a living. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, switching gears, um, writing about plants and writing about art to me seems to be about as different to two practices as one could do. Right. Because the wonder. Uh, so t- talk to me how that works, because your your practice seems sort of evenly divided between things men make and uh, not men, but, you know, humankind yeah. makes and uh, things that humankind has nothing to do with. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. So I teach arts writing and like but I kind of, I haven't been doing a lot of writing about art lately. Like, um, I mean, for me, it's like when I write about art, it's because I have a deep engagement with that artist's practice. And generally it's like, it's not like, I don't think of myself as like a proper art critic, if that makes sense. Like, uh, it's more like, like it's a kind of obsessive crossing over. Like there's something in how that artist works that Mm. I need for myself and my own work. Like, because mm. writing is essentially this very linear thing. Like sentences are in are in are in a line. They have a beginning and a middle and an end. There's like an inherent teleology in a sentence that's kind of reinscribed over and over. And like art is uh, non-narrative, and it like collects on all these other disciplines and ideas, whether it's philosophy or politics or technology or whatever. And those things are happening with a simultaneity that I find kind of collapse our take on time. Mm. And for me, I really, um, there are are just often artists where like their way of working um, is kind of simpatico to my way of thinking, or I want something from that, you know? So that's kind of why I do it. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I I find that I had this very part of my journey back to art was um, because I was working in environmental um, or ecological remediation through a variety of different practices, activism, business, et cetera. And I found that the only people who could articulate the breadth of complexity were artists, uh, because totally. if it would take me five books and 20 years of advocacy to make the same point that like an artist like Tat Futan does in, you know, an afternoon of showing 
as opposed to all the telling and describing that I could do through writing or so it's, it's really, it's, I've found that, that similarly, I found like there's a utility and I don't mean to say in like a kind of very base level of utility, but there's a utility to the way that we, you know, artists can absorb all of these, you know, intuitional information and display it back in a way that it, it's really impossible to do um, as a communication in any other way. So I've been, he was, he was the first guest on my show and an old friend of mine. So but he's been one of my great teachers about the limits of my very overly verbose approach to life, um, which, you know, as you named, has tremendous limitations and, and only expresses a very narrow band of, of what our experience is. Right. And I, I mean, like for me, I'm always interested. The thing that I like about like writing about visual things is that language fails. Like, like totally. there's a place where language fails and like the failure to me is like, it's like, that's this wondrous place. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, because it's like, like I'm really, really interested in similes because similes say something's like something, but actually saying something is like something is saying something is not that thing at all. Yeah. And I think like that is fucking awesome. Like, like the gap. Like the gaps in language just get me. Yeah. I mean, it's also why I like plant etymology. Yeah. There's this thing, you know, what I, I, I I saw this movie, you probably saw this movie uh, about mushrooms, which is like a big rage two or three years ago about like, you know, and it's, it's a little bit of um, an apology, so to speak, for people who use magic mushrooms, you know, but it's also this kind of stating this kind of wonder that they believe that language developed in Africa from the hunter tribes following animals on the hunt and the psychedelic mushrooms grew in their in their scat or their feces. And they would as they were kind of, you know, the way humans hunt because we don't we're not particularly strong is we just kind of have to like annoy an animal for a lot of miles and kind of keep up with it until it kind of falls over from exhaustion and then we eat it. But before then we had to eat little something on the way and they would eat the psychedelic mushrooms and it created this synesthesia where we would, you know, uh, be able to connect the sounds we make with our mouths with things we see with our eyes. So it's inherently a, a blending of two senses, right? Like that we see something, we see a cat and then we make the sound cat that has nothing to do with cat, right? So language is inherently metaphoric in, and then a metaphor on top of that becomes this like really complicated decoding, you know? And uh, then we try to, you know, we get mad at children when they can't figure it all out, but you know, it's, it's kind of madness. It's, and, and I just think that like, yeah, yes, <laughs> totally. Anyways, that was uh, probably more mushrooms. Um, mushrooms will be your next thing. I don't know. Maybe you're already into them. I mean, they're all Actually, over. Well, they're sort of David's thing. We did go for chanterelles this morning. Oh, nice. And he ate a chrome footed bullet for lunch. I was like, I've never seen that thing before. I'm not touching that. Like, I mean, well, well yeah. David, I mean, David is actually like certified to like do that. Like he can, he oh, can good. forage and sell restaurant like mushrooms to restaurants. I don't have to want to eat something I've never seen that. I'm like, well, you know, John, John Cage, you know, he, he, he got very violently sick from misidentifying a mushroom. Uh, and he was when it was, yeah, he was a total mycologist. And he was, he, he, he created the mycological society of New York, which was like basically a bunch of artists, like faking, well, not faking, but like attempting to gather this knowledge that they, that they found profoundly moving, but not, they weren't particularly adept at it at first. (laughs) 
I think David's a Mycological Society of New York member. There you go. It's almost, it's funny because like so many, yeah. so many artists are member of that group and that many of them don't give a, a what about um, mushrooms, but they're, it's like part of, it's like a club of some kind, you know, some of them do care about mushrooms, yeah. but not all. Um, let me um, take a step back and, and ask you in terms of this strange practice of writing, um, I've asked you to like sort of identify like a piece that you come back to uh, that, that either inspired you to begin writing or keeps you at writing. And I wonder if you could share what it is with us and maybe read either all of it or a portion of it. Oh, yeah. I, so I struggled with this a lot. It's a hard question. It's, like, it's a really hard question. So it's like, I mean, like, I read over the Adrian Rich book that like I started reading when I was like 15, mm-hmm. um, which is called A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far. And it's a great book. Um, but I was like reading over the poem. So she does this amazing thing where she kind of like layers her life in with history and sort of mm. like, co- like um, conjoins them. And she was also incredibly intersectional in her thinking. Um, mm. And she was friends with Audre Lorde. Like she was all these amazing things. And then I was reading these poems over and like, and, and she was one of the inspirations for me to become, to like study art history in college and to like want to become an art historian. Like I had a crush on her and John Ruskin when I was a teenager. And like, I was like, wow, and I loved how she collapsed time. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was like, and I was like reading her, I was reading some of those poems over this morning and I was like, these are actually really hokey. I'm not actually sure I can read these aloud, uh-huh. uh, but she's still like, she's still like, she's actually in my weirdo book on sort of socialism and, and time she's in there. There are like, there are quotes of hers on the wall behind me. Mm. Uh, but instead the person who's doing this in a way that I also love is Lisa Robertson, who is also a poet and wrote her first novel a couple years ago called the Baudelaire Fractal. And it's, a coming of age story and kind of her coming into being a poet and coming into the entire received um, knowledge of Baudelaire's oeuvre as a kind of young woman trying to find her way in poetry. Mm. So it's a, it's a kind of coming of age book and an essay on Baudelaire. And I like that. Cause I like, I like the, the mixing of the two and it's um, kind of auto fiction and the narrator's name is Hazel Brown, which I find really funny like as a name, like it's super, super funny. And so I'm going to read it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like Humbert Humbert, right? Hazel Brown. Totally. Um, and so there's this bit I'm going to read, which is sort of towards the end and I'm reading from the galley. So that this might've changed all, all apologies to anybody. Um, and at this place in here where I'm going to read from, um, she's just been to um, the Louvre and seen this um, untitled a portrait of a girl. And she talks about how girls are anonymous and kind of like violence against girls as in language and in poetry and even from Baudelaire. And mm. in all of this, she's kind of trying to work into coming into the pronoun I, from being an unnamed she to being an I who owns mm. and has mastery of a language. Uh, so I hadn't then decided how to become that other thing which here I will call for the sake of brevity a poet, but indecision did nothing to lessen my vehemence about it. I had not learned the ordinary workaday devotions. I sought a mystic portal. I was practicing versions of an intensity I supposed necessary to my ambition, an earnest desire that that I had found um, in Walter Pater, a little ledge of language to perch upon for a while, 
to burn always with a hard gem-like flame, as he said, a clear perpetual outline at the core of everything mutable. I thought I'd find the gem in sex, this being an available mythology for the seeking and sensual girl. Then she goes on to try and find it in being alone. And then she goes to say, there was no one position that could reveal to me the seemingly occult passage to the desired metamorphosis. I had not yet discovered the innate monstrosity of pronouns. And what did I impatiently burn for? Something like an initiation or a revelation to emerge one late morning from my chambre de bon into a city that had overnight become the supple landscape of a female thinking. As it was, I made do. There was no dramatic metamorphosis, not that I could perceive in my daydreams or in my typewritten poems or in my diary. Yet in the city, I was discovering the collage of fantasy pigment quotation and architecture that I walked through daily in my outfits and my obsessions. I came to notice small scale transpositions, tiny openings within the texture of the present where choices towards a freed thinking could be possible. Now I am not sure if these little tropes could be, would be part of poetry or of philosophy. In truth, I did not distinguish between the two. Each was a Baroque accretion of my body in the city. Doing philosophy would be the annotation of the present tense eruption of my body in the city or in reading. Doing poetry would be renaming oneself as the heiress of a linguistic infraction. And it goes on and on in this way. So she manages to kind of collapse all these ideas and time in the writing. Um, and it's kind of psychedelic. And she comes yeah. into being Baudelaire as a woman, as a young woman, basically. Um, and as a kind of dandified woman. And she and the whole book is also a kind of theory of women's writing. Mm. And, and how tell me um, uh, how what part or what aspect of that spoke to you the most and strongest? Like where did it resonate? deepest well i like i mean like a i just love her writing like and she's a kind of theoretical writer which i am too uh but there's this weird inhabitation of history that i like like um in a lot of my writing um i try and collapse history into the present like uh i have a really hard time in writing with tenses like basically i want to always write in a perpetual present tense and even though she writes in the past tense, there's this collapsing of past and present with Baudelaire's life and her criticism of his life and his treatment of women with her own life and mm. aims. And I just find that really amazing because it's also pretty psychedelic, like, you know, to like um, see yourself as indistinguishable from something else. Yeah. Mm. Again, the simile, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to merge, to merge. You know, I was really freaked out when I studied Latin. And they refer to the, there's a tense in Latin, uh, which is the, you know, um, you know, Jen is tired. Derek is tall. Um, I hope you're not tired. I was just, it came to mind, but, um, uh, and they call it the copulative. You know? And I was like, wow, that's okay. They're putting yeah. that right out there. So, so I guess that's also what's really interesting about her work. I think she, there was this, um, there was an, you know, a very intellectualized, but a very kind of meditation on how to come into being through your body, interacting with other bodies in the way in which we merge and then come apart, merge and then come apart. And, and there's a, there's an excitement and confusion around that. And the same thing, when you read an author, there's a, there's sort of a intellectual copulation because you're putting their words into your mind, you know, and I talked to, you know, you know, other writers and students about this, like that, 
when you write something, you are trying to ask, you're, you're asking the other person to come into your mind for a moment, you know, and it better be worth the visit, you know? <laughs> you have to like explain it enough to make it worth, like you have to like, like one of the things that I like about the essay form is that like, you can kind of do anything. You can yeah. end it. Um, you can take wrong turns. You can like throw a bunch of ideas that don't seem connected together. You just have to give your reader enough connective tissue to follow you. Which mm-hmm. I think, and that can be direct address. Like it can be this really wild stuff. Um, but on the copulative front, there's a lot of good sex in the Baudelaire fractal. Like it's actually a very, very sexy book. Right. She talks about having sex, a lot of anonymous bad sex, like that we all had when we were like 19 and 20. Uh, so it's a lovely kind of celebration of that age as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's like coming into being is trying to figure out what kind of being you are, you know, and, uh, there's a painful process to that and you can either avoid it or embrace it, you know? And so I think a lot of the writers that we enjoy and, you know, Chris Krauss, I guess, comes to mind too. And, um, Baudelaire himself, you know, it's like, we're watching these people sort of like, you know, push their arms and legs through the chrysalis, you know, and it's not all pretty. No, Uh it never yeah. is. You know, the easier it, it is, is, if you want it, if you want that suburban life, you can avoid it all. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting thinking about that because like as somebody who kind of uses some memoir in my writing, I never want to show people the like unfinished crap. Like I never yeah, want to, like, I'm just not that interested in like, I'm, I'm not like self-exposure is kind of strange <laughs> for me. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. So it's interesting. I think writing is really hard that way where it's like this combination of vulnerability and hiding. Um, And, um, and, you know, sometimes people think of poetry as this code where like, why don't you just say you wanted to have sex with your, your, your shy mistress? You know, why does, why do you have to go through all this trouble of like circling around her, you know, but I think it's like the difference between dancing and walking, right? It's like a, it's a very elaborate fluttering of wings and tweeting and, um, and it's more fun, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, um, you know, I think one of the great mysteries of writing, I tell, I talk to my students about this too, is like the ball is hidden from us about ourselves, right? Like, and so in trying to find it, we, you know, people will commiserate with our suffering, you know, trying to, trying to find that, that, that center of ourselves, you know? Um, so, but I, I like what you say about the essay. That's really interesting. And is that what attracts you to it? Is it the freedom of the form? Cause it does seem like the essay suddenly has become, you know, you know, the most open form available, right? It's I, well, for me, it is like, and, and, you know, it's like, there are plenty of people who bend novels to do, what they need them to do. I mean, it's like in somebody's hands, this could be called an essay, the Baudelaire fractal. And like, you know, um, I am, you know, I'd like my MFA is in fiction and it doesn't work for me. It's like every time I try and write fiction, it gets stuck in kind of like chronology. Like, and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's death to me and it's like death to my poor readers. And it's like there, which isn't to say like there are plenty of people who can bend it and break it and use that form as they want. I just find a lot of freedom in the essay, but I also like writing about stuff. Like, like I like a subject. I like mm-hmm. search to me. Those things are really grounding and it's like, I can kind of pin myself around them. But you know, I mean, I was also the weirdo kid who it's like, had this crush on like rich and Ruskin 
So it's like time travel for me has always been interesting. Mm. Material objects, because both of them write about material objects a lot in history and their work. Like those things are really key to me still. Like, you know, I'm still just a kind of freak, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think all writers, like, you know, anybody can sit and converse with themselves for hours at a time and, and, and become convinced that others should be interested. There's always a little bit of strangeness to it, right? Or solipsism. Um, like, it's yeah. like, you know, it's like, the strange little kid who had to go out alone and pick flowers. It's like that person is made to be a writer. Like you have mm-hmm. to be, you have to be okay with your own company. Yeah. I, yeah. I've wrestled with that too myself as being, you know, and, and also there's like a, there's a combination of um, the thing I wrestle with a lot myself is like, is this a selfish practice or a selfless practice? And I wonder, does that ever come to you? Like that kind of like it, that wrestling match? It used to be a question that I had when I was like younger as a writer, like when I was sort of like more where I was kind of like closer to having just finished my MFA and trying to figure out my path and writing really bad realist fiction that was basically, you know, felt like death to me and probably to everybody who read it. Uh, But then I kind of figured out my way and like, now I don't feel that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, it's like, I'm also, I'm also a kind of political writer. Like I write a lot about socialism mm-hmm. and I'm a pretty bad socialist, but, um, you know, it's like, for me, my, my politics are pretty, um, cl- like are pretty, are held pretty close in my writing or like, or like revealed. And I'm really like, so I don't, I don't feel so strange about it. And also, you know, it's like, I now do community service in a very active way. Right. Like when I moved here at first, I was like, I live in a really poor Appalachian place. Uh, you know, how can I justify spending six hours a day on this solipsistic thing that maybe nobody is ever going to see that might never get published? What a waste of time when I have a community that needs me. Mm. Uh, or that's how I looked at it then. Um, they probably didn't need me, but, you know, uh, and I don't feel that way anymore. But what about the, is is that where the fire department comes from? Is that the, is the, is sort of an offset to the the six hours in the seat? Well, it's not really, kind of like, so the fire department is an offset, but it's not quite that one-to-one. It's more like, (laughs) I mean, like I joined because I lived near my firehouse and I would hear the siren go off. Cause if you live in a rural town, the siren goes off in the middle of the night and the firefighters are called out to do their job. And I felt so guilty that somebody else was waking up at like 3.45 in the morning and I was just rolling over and hopefully going back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then my parents started and I was like, I have time. <laughs> and, and so I joined and I find it's really transcendent in a very Whitman-like way to serve in the fire department because- It's, you your, know, it's, it's, like, your, it's your Civil War nursing? It's my Civil War nursing, kind of. <laughs> I mean, like, I didn't think about it quite that way. It's more like, it's more like, you know, it's like being upstate now, it's more like being in the city than it used to be. You could always, like when I moved here, it was impossible to have relationships with people who looked like me or were like me or thought like me. And so it was a really interesting place. Like it, like I, like I became, um, you know, it was very intergenerational, um, there was a lot more flexibility and malleability. And now, because so many people have moved from the city up here or weekenders here, one could choose to just interact with those 
who reflect you. Like I could spend all my life upstate with artists and writers. Mm. Being in the fire department is not that like they, I, I am a kind of oddball there. Like, mm. And yet it's also being like with family. Like I truly love those people I serve with in a way that I did not understand. Like it is a brotherhood <laughs> or something like So it's kind of an amazing thing. And also it's very politically at odds with my values. Like I can say bar none, I am the only socialist in the Margaretville fire department. Mm. Uh, You know, there are several people who um, are you going to get, are you going to get black, are you going to get blacklisted for that uh, admission or no, probably not. I mean, I just get dark looks for saying I'm a Democrat. So (laughs) Is that I guess that Democrat and socialist become one, right? They're, they're synonymous. They're not synonymous for me, but they are my fire department. Uh, and and yet there's this really amazing thing of like showing up feels actually in our very fraught times a very transcendent thing. Like it feels really. Mm. Yeah, I found so, living. I found living. Off. Yeah. Yeah, I found living. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, yeah. but I I found living in upstate even for nine months. There's a way in which New York City is such a weird place to live in. We both came from that place. And um, it, it everything, there's so many of every type of person that you never have to leave the, this tiny insular enclave. Like if you're like a 30 year old who likes techno music that comes from Bulgaria, you can find 400 other people who you'll spend your whole life with, you know, yeah, whereas when you go very self-selective, right? So, but if you, if and God bless those people, yeah. I'm not, nothing against that. But when you leave and you come upstate, it's like, it's much thinner uh, in terms of, and to find that person, you'd have to drive like two hours. And so suddenly you, you're, there's a compression of all the, and there's also a class and education thing that I'm, I'm not making complete, you know, that, that you're probably referring to and a political thing, but then you all get kind of thrown together and you kind of have to figure out how to live together, you know, in a variety of ways. Cause you, there's also more inter-reliance, you know, like um, that happens in rural areas, your, your car gets stuck, your house is on fire. There's people need each other more in different ways where in the city, there's not these like huge governmental forces intermediating everybody and keeping things anonymous. And so, like I was, I worked a, 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 you know, a menial job to make ends meet during the summer. And the people I worked with, it was the same experience you had. At first I was like, wow, I've never had this experience since I was like a teenager, you know, working on a, you know, and so, but for me, it was, it was, it was good. Cause I, I realized that it, I'd been, I'd been somewhat trapped and, and my view of the world was completely distorted you know, as a result. And not that I was wrong. I wasn't wrong to have similar political leanings to what you described, but I was wrong to, to believe that, that I was right. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I'm just going to say where QAnon is concerned, I'm definitely right. (laughs) I mean, I do have some some firefighters who are, uh you know, who are like very in that, in that vein of thinking. Right. That's hard. But like, well, it's, you know, what? Yeah. it's like, I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but it's one of my inspirations, although it's completely different than this one, which is like heartbreakingly sincere. But um, they have this thing where like the, the thing about the right right now is it's so much fun. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's like the left is a bore. It's like, do your homework, wear your mask, go to sleep, eat your Wheaties. Who would want that? QAnon, awful, super fun. 
Oh my God. So there's this very funny moment just before the election where I was like at a, at a fire call, it was a structure fire. I'm standing around with this other guy and he's like, you know, Joe Biden is a pedophile. And like, and, and I was just like, <laughs> I didn't even know what to say. And then he talks about being a redneck and I'm like, you know where the word redneck comes from? It does come from the wobblies. I was like, it comes from minor strikes and socialists. He's like, I didn't know that. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> it was, was a, this, it was this weirdo <laughs> moment of conjoined, yeah. like, uh, yeah. you know, info wars. <laughs> Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, uh, you know, that's that classic thing. Those unaware of history are condemned to repeat it. Right. And and so many people who do. I mean, your your desire to live to write in the present, but treat the past as if it's the present is an impulse that most people both can't tolerate the complexity of. Right. Because they have you have to there's a there's a there's a um, an understanding of that you weren't just born the, the minute before you began speaking uh, which most people you know um they can't hold those thoughts in their minds all at the same time it's too it's not like it's too hard for them they're just they're, that's not their practice of living you know and so when you get into this practice of living you're seeing those things you're seeing those shades it's like it's like um, those movies where you put on the, the special glasses and like suddenly you see all the different colors that other people don't see, you know, and it's I'm not saying that, you know, writers or, or, or people who think about history are better. It's just the practice of thinking about history all the time makes you realize that the present is not really as thin as we think it is. It's actually thinking of it as thin is is certainly easier in some ways, but also terrifying, right? Like it's, um, you know, there's a way in which like I, what we were talking about before, where I was like, where I thought the human world mattered so much. Uh, and I was afraid last year, like so many of us. And then I came into this natural place and I was like, oh, you know what? The human world is just this bogus little crust, you know, <laughs> like we don't, we really don't matter at all. And nothing I think matters. And, and it was very freeing, you know? So I do think if you if you and so what I'm saying is sort of complicated, like if you really embrace this moment as being important and 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 and, and human reality being the only reality, it, it's kind of terrifying and lonely. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you agree or? Well, I think the plants are going to be just fine without us. Basically. Yeah, exactly. But that's to me, I find that comforting. And, and to I those. Like, yeah. Well, it's like this idea that we are the pinnacle of whatever life form. It's like, as soon as we stop thinking that, like, we become very disposable. Like, Yeah, but I, I do think the people who drive the Ford F-150s uh, at 100 miles an hour and believe in QAnon, I, I'm, I'm characterizing people. And that's yes. obviously absurd. It's okay. but, the, character, but, the character is not that off. But a lot of times people, say, yeah. people, a lot of people want to inhabit that character. And I'm not, I'm not creating that character. A lot of people want to be that character and they play the role of that character. But the role of that character, I think, is, is, a, is an interesting one because I think it's, I've come to realize in, in having kind of been more like intimate with people who are playing those characters, and I'm playing my own character too, I'm not saying I'm immune, um, is that I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, it's a place of great fear, you know? Um, and I think we all have different kinds of fears, right? But I think that's when I saw that up close, the, the bravado of it is, is comes, um, you don't have to be brave unless you're afraid of something, right? So, <laughs> oh, I mean, the one thing, like one of the things that we do not do a really good job of talking about in our country is like class issues. Like I am yeah. such a socialist and it's like, it's like that fear. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, of course, everybody's like scared. Like, like we live in a country where it's like 
there's wage stagnation, like uh, medical bills, student debt, like all these things are harmed. Right. And like, and we have a, there's a, yeah. And they affect each different group, identity group very differently, but it's like the bravado of a white man who's feeling a harm he is experiencing harm of capitalism. Yeah, of we course. just don't name that harm clearly enough to draw comparisons. I mean, part of my interest in polytemporality is like, you know, I'm very interested in like socialist uprisings that did do that. Like, you know, I'm very interested in like the Farmers Alliance and the Populist People's Party of the 1870s because they drew alliances across like race lines in the South Mm. uh, that like then got squashed by Democrats. Uh, You know, I'm very like, for me, like my polytemporality is like, there was a really radical socialist uprising in the Catskills in the 1840s, which was this moment of kind of like radical re-envisioning of the country in many ways. It's like a time when there was like, you know, utopian communes were flourishing. And here my neighbors, many of whom still live here were like part of this uprising. And so I can kind of, and and like in both sort of social and economic conditions that are very similar to ours now. So it's like, for me to like imagine a different time or living in that different time or those times collapsing is like a coping strategy. Yeah, you know, I think it's one thing that's really amazing about the last year is I feel like there's so much of our country that's committed to forgetting. And I and I and I thought, wow, that's a that makes sense because we all, you know, came, you know, to some extent we came from trauma or we came here and experienced trauma, and so maybe that's like that's a strategy. But the the sad part about anybody who's dealt with you know immediacy of trauma is that the the denial that forgetting entails doesn't alleviate you from the suffering. So it usually it comes. It comes in unexpected ways rather than, you know, uh, forms that you can anticipate based on the triggers of your own past, you know. And so I think that that the last year I I had so much fear myself about people who held opinions that I couldn't understand. And and really, I think there's so much that I began to see that it's like there's this deep commitment to forgetting. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot about because I think a lot about time and like time in my writing. Mm-hmm. And the kind of like, you know, linear time has an inherent idea of progress in it. And like with this idea of progress, the present is preordained. It's always better than the past, mm-hmm. which uh, leads to a kind of natural idea of forgetting. But it also leads to a way of um, dispensing with histories that could be alive, like particularly with like kind of like left history. Because those, right. those histories are always kind of over or defeated because capitalism has whatever. And so, um, yeah. And so it's like, if I can exist in this kind of polytemporous way, uh, those moments are still here and present and offer kind of different ways of envisioning our lives now. Yeah, the eight-hour day is still with us. Um, oh, yeah. For, 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 a, for yeah. a minute, for just one minute longer until Walmart finds a way to subvert it completely. Um, sorry, little. this is as political as I've ever gotten. I'm very excited. But um, the uh, what I wanted to ask you, there's there's a hidden, we, we have, we're almost at an hour, and I don't want to go much over because I, I don't want to um, 
stress either of our um, times out, but there's something that that I, I love that you said is that you figured out your way and then there's somehow sort of a magical thing that, you know, you put your hand in a box and suddenly you became you of the present. But what was that process like of figuring out your way from the um, the fiction that you found um, defeating to the essays that you found more resonant? What was the, how did you find that way? What was that it path was, like? It was kind of an accident. So there was another upstate writer named Greg Oliar, and he wanted to start a site dedicated to the essay, like where we would each write an essay once a week, like five of us who called ourselves that, the weaklings. That's a, he- like, that's a heavy demand once a it week. Was a, oh, it was totally a heavy demand, but it was like a really good practice for me. And like, you know, I mean, basically, you know, it's like if I'm the weirdo who like had a crush on Andrea and Rich and John Ruskin, probably the essay should have always been my form. And it was just a way where I started to write essays and I found this looseness like and and like I also went back to writing about art in that time. Like, mm. you know, I'd done like after we were at um, college together and I started grad school and then dropped out. I did the Whitney program and then I was like, fuck the art world. And so I like like I like went in the desert for you know a long time and then i came back to writing about art and i found this freedom there like which was Mm. the same kind of freedom i had as a teenager when i wrote about art Mm -hmm. and so it was just like more like oh yeah now i make sense to myself like i i I, you know i was no longer trying to be the writer who somebody else expected me to be Mm. or that i thought i needed to be you know it was like basically i did an mfa in fiction because a literary agent in London who I'm very good friends with still was like, you have a great natural voice. You should write fiction. And I was like, of course I should write fiction. So this like very powerful agent told me to write fiction. And so, you know, I got an MFA and yet it was a form that wasn't my form. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it was just kind of the luck of this person saying, Hey, let's write essays together. And it's sort of suiting me. And then I just kept doing it and doing it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That, that's, that makes sense. I think it's like, um, it's, it's so hard. I think as an artist to find the shoe that fits sometimes, you know, because we have a, a sense of who we should be. Um, you know, like I, I've been through many different art forms myself and like, even with like, I was in, you know, punk rock bands, as you know, and, and there'd be moments where I would get up on stage and I'd be like, I don't know why I'm here. (laughs) You know, I would just like, this seems very forced, you know, I, I, that I have to go through the motions of this and, you know, and there's, so there, there was, there was a moment where it just, it, it didn't fit me. Um, There was a moment where it felt like everything. um, And there was a moment where it didn't fit me. And, and uh, that was very confusing because I'd set up my whole life. Like when you have an MFA, you set up your whole life to do this one thing. And then you're like, I felt like, um, this tremendous disappointment in myself that I, that I had this, I don't, I don't know if it was a crisis of confidence or just this sense that it was too, the medium was too artificial or the, or the, or the, or like the thing you said about the art world occurred to me that it felt like, you know, the, there's a way in which when you're part of this kind of very closed world, you feel like you can't be yourself because everybody expects you to be part of this kind of group and sort of, you know, the, the, the punk rock world was very like that. And, you know, that, they, you know, it was very inherently conservative, even though it spoke of freedom, right? And the art world, I think, can be that too. You know, it's like it can be very. Um, there's a there's a way in which 
liberation from it can be it's the greatest joy you know totally yeah and so i found definitely the liberation from any expectation of fiction writing you know watch in three years i'm going to be writing a, a realist novel and i'll be like this is the thing so like you know caveats apologies it could all change you know well yeah i think also you know it's interesting i i have a similar impulse you know uh and interesting that we connect around this is that when i was writing some of my early work my my poetry fell into a category um that is i now know i didn't know at the time was the like poetry of witness where you 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 were trying to express either a historical fact that's living in the present or a, a present fact that's politically problematic and trying to merge them all. And I remember I was in a, you know, a, a poetry workshop that was not part of a university where a lot of people do it as a, a lay practice or, or, or amateur practice, which I'm not denigrating. I think there's no real difference between an amateur poet and a published poet or whatever the hell. I don't believe in those hierarchies, but a lot of people that are drawn to it, they write very emotional, confessional poetry. And and someone said to me, like, this doesn't feel like a poem to me. This feels like it should be an essay. <laughs> and, uh, and then I read um, uh, Claudia Rankin and I thought, this feels like a poem to me, even though it really is an essay. So I think that there's a way in which like the 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 form you know, you'll find your way in 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 to express yourself in a in in the form and the form itself, if it's overly rigid and the the plot driven kind of fictive quality of of fiction can seem very artificial. The same way that that like poetry is kind of you know desire to be confessional and emotional to me didn't always feel appealing. You know, so I think that's really a challenging thing though because so often you're told you're doing the wrong thing <laughs> when you're actually doing your thing. You know. It's interesting. I definitely do not like confessional poetry. Like I like uh, I like kind of astringent intellectual poetry, I might say. Uh, but I also think that the like lyric essay form is basically like, you know, when people ask what I do, I'm like, oh, right, weirdo essays. And then they ask me more and I'm like, oh, it's just like being a poet. Like, you know, my expectations of success are basically what a poet would have. Kind right. Of. Yeah. Yeah. You just get to write longer. You know, I'm so the thing that happens to me too is that all these publications I go to submit my work and they're like, please submit a poem of 40 lines or less. And I think <laughs> I, I I was like, wow, I don't think I've written more than two poems of 40 lines or less. You know, I and I didn't realize that I was on this like this word diet that that the form demanded. Then I thought maybe I should be writing essays because no one would question the length of it, you know. Um, Except Except there's a tricky thing. So I wrote very long essays, like 9,000 word essays. Right, right, like, right. And you're like, oh, submit this thing, 4,000 words. And you're like, well, you and your nature writing prize at a 4,000 word limit. Right. Yeah. You're so, I was like, you know, I was like, wait a minute. Is I mean, I sort of understand the difference between 80,000 words and 4,000 words. But the difference between like I wrote a, a poem that I just submitted that was 41 lines to a 40 limit. And I thought, God, I hope they're not counting. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, and it just, totally. it seems like, it seems like all the art that's fit to print, you know? And I, I don't know. So I bridle at these, these, these categorical and, 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 and in my workshops too, people would see my work and they'd be like, oh damn, here he comes again with his three page disquisition on the, on the end of the Spanish empire, you know, and, and, uh, oh, you know, I want to read the three page disposition on the end of the Spanish empire, like, oh, Hey, yeah. to get that into three pages, that is poetry. Like, well, that sounds I, amazing. I, I thought so too, but, but, you know, everybody else was, you know, these sort of, you know, compressed, I mean, 
there is something to be said about what is it? I mean, Stanley Kunitz said poetry's language is its most uh, condensed and most uh, open to interpretation. That, that's a butchery of his quote, but it's something like that. So I do see the, the, the logic to those people who can create that kind of condensation. But if you didn't happen to be that kind of person, as I am not, you, you might find yourself in between categories. And it sounds like we are birds of a feather. Um, anyways, um, Jen, I'm deeply grateful for you joining me to have this very kind of freewheeling conversation about the, the things that fly in our minds and then fly out to page. So thanks for that. And uh, thanks for the willingness to um, have this conversation. And it's just great to be in touch. And, and thank you so much for your work, because um, in preparing for this podcast, I, I, I delved more deeply into your recent work, and it meant a lot to me to read those things. So thank you. Thanks, Derek. Um, it's really, I'm very touched that you asked. And it's like fun to get to talk about ideas. Also, given that we've had such a long history together, like, um, and it's nice when those histories start to helix around each other again. Yeah. Yeah, all around garlic mustard and mugwort. <laughs> yeah, and writing and like punk rock bands, all that stuff. And yeah, some socialism. Yeah. Next yeah. next podcast we'll we'll reminisce on the on the bands that got us uh, inspired because <laughs> that'll take a long time. <laughs> that would be like oh, that would be like everybody will get bored. They'll be like oh yeah, they're from DC. God help us, you know. Yeah, the name. <laughs> yeah. When will the name checking end? Uh, yeah, that, that sounds like a perpetual conversation for yeah. poor David when we run into DC people. Yes. To, to be continued. Um, yeah. Thanks again, Jen. Thanks, Derek. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye.